Okay, should we start? Yeah, roll it. <laughs> okay, everybody, welcome. Uh, this week we're going to uh, do um, a little bit of an unusual movie for us. We're going to talk about a horror film, and this is uh, our podcast on It Follows, directed by uh, David Robert Mitchell, which came out in 2014, uh, which I actually saw when it came out and just recently rewatched. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Doug. 20, you. 2014 at, at Cannes, I guess it got uh, some acclaim there, some notice, and it's it's really a true indie film. I guess it was picked up after getting some acclaim there by a distributor. Right, definitely. I mean, a, a budget of uh, less than $2 million, I read. Uh, and, and for less than $2 million, it's a, it's a very good product, I would say. Goes to show you how much technology is advanced when you can make something look this good for relatively little money because digital video is so good. Right. And there's, there's not many effects in this movie and the few effects that they have, uh, they, they put some effort and time and thought into, and you know, this movie doesn't need a lot of effects. It's mostly suspense. Right. Um, do you want to give us a summary? Yeah. So the movie is, it's about a, a girl who basically has a, uh, has sex with somebody she doesn't know very well in a car and she's sort of like maybe 18 ish or, or so. And, um, then the, the guy ties her up right afterward and tells her that he has to apologize and she's not going to understand what he's saying, but she's going to be followed by some kind of horrific creature that's going to try to kill her. And, um, now he's passed it on to her and make sure she doesn't get killed because if she does, it's going to come after him and he sort of gives her the ground rules while she's tied up on a chair. Um, In her bra and underpants. Right. And then he disappears. The cops, she goes to the cops. She can't, nobody can find him. And then um, it, then she sees somebody like a couple of days later, she sees somebody stalking her at school. And um, it's basically just as he described and pointed out to her the night he, he basically abducts her and she figures out that basically there's something following her. It's some kind of creature. It takes forms of different people. They're usually either naked or partially clothed. They walk slowly and the, the distance as she figures out from when they track this guy down again, her and her friends that are all hanging around together, um, in Detroit or around Detroit, um, basically this creature is able to walk slowly and get someplace eventually. So if you drive further away, you buy yourself, you know, a day or two because it's whatever the walking distance is. And, um, her friends and her try some various ways to get rid of it. And she tries some ways to get rid of it. And it comes back, uh, because basically one of her friends gets killed. Um, and the end of the movie is right. interesting. Well, he, and he gets killed because he doesn't take she it actually seriously. passes it. She passes it to him. They have sex. Right. And, and he she passes it to him and it gets him. Right. And he, he doesn't take it seriously. Right. He doesn't believe that it is following him. Right. And she sees it go after him and sees it kill him. And um, and then when it gets him, it goes all r- of a sudden, it's right back up to her. Right. And... The end of the movie, the very ending is interesting, as we'll talk about, because the ending of the movie is the two couple, there's the young couple, it's another one of her friends that clearly is 
romantically interested in her um, are walking together. She ends up basically passing it to him and then he goes to a prostitute uh, sort of he he's trying to plan his way out of the the situation in a way like he's sort of a, a thoughtful guy and um in the end they're walking holding hands sort of with a sort of a budding relationship you can presume and then there's a figure walking down the sidewalk back behind them that you see and you're not really sure if it's the it follows it or if it's just some person walking on the street what did you say about a prostitute that's that's what he that's what he does because he's cruising the uh what's his name paul the young kid who's kind of kind of geeky yeah he's he cruises the street like he basically right after he's with her he's driving his old car around looking at these prostitutes in the street Oh yeah, like yeah, but he doesn't these, do anything with well, that. Well, they but the movie doesn't show everything. No, so, no. For a second, I thought you said that he did something. I think he does. I think it's implied that he that he basically that was his plan. His plan was to pass it off to a prostitute right mm-hmm. away. Although it's it's also implied that they may have stopped it in in the pool. There's a big scene in the the big climax of the film as they they have a face off with it. At a at a large indoor swimming pool, a natatorium, as we used to say, hmm. um, uh, and and there's heavy implications that it's defeated at the pool. So you actually don't know at the end of the movie whether it is still alive or following them anymore or not. I think that it nothing stops it though. You just slow it down because that's shown over and over again. I I sort of assume that. You can't really stop it. Although the the thing about this movie that's interesting is that it doesn't explain everything. It sort of leaves it, it, you. It's right, a mood it explains piece. actually very little. Right. It, it's really just sort of about the mood um, rather than about the technical details of the you know the horror. You know, you'll see these action horror movies where um, they explain everything. A la, what do they do that in like the more recent? You know, alien sequels where they try to make sense of nonsense, you know, which is impossible. Right. And um, this movie doesn't do that at all. It just, it it's sort of happy to exist in a, in a, a very um, confused uh, sensibility, which serves the purpose of being a, a scary movie. It's dreamy, kind of dreamlike almost. Sort of. I mean, it even starts with, you know, with um, Jay sort of sort of talking about her daydreams. Like when she's out on the date with with the boy who essentially passes it to her, like she talks openly about her daydreams. And the opening scene of the movie is her sort of daydreaming in a pool. Um, But let's just step back a little bit. I mean, you know, this is as horror movies go, this is much more suspense base and for example a lot of horror movies sort of revel in the gore and this is not that kind of movie there is there is a little bit of gore and a little bit of violence but not much i mean uh, there's there are long scenes where it's just sort of building tension um and i'm personally not a huge fan of the gore uh horror film which is why for example like the shining i think is my my favorite horror film or like for example let the right one in which we should do a podcast on uh, and there's always some gore in these movies, but you know it's not uh, it, it's not um, um, you know um, I'm trying to think of a really really 
It's not the Green Inferno, shall we say, right? Which is a two-hour, you know, gore fest. It's not that kind of film. Texas Chainsaw. Right, exactly. Um, the Hills Have Eyes. Um, you know, this is, I think, more in the vein of The Shining or Let the Right One In, or the American version is called Let Me Into That, um, where it's mostly about the tension and the situation and the character's you know, trying to puzzle out what the situation that they're in is, because the only explanation that's ever really given is given by the boy who passes it uh, to Jay. Um, and it's not even clear where he got his information from. Jay, Jay is the heroine. Yeah. Right. Jay is the heroine. Uh, I think it's actually Jamie, but she goes by Jay right. in the film. Um and, you know, they're left to try to puzzle out exactly what is the speed of this thing, what are the limits of its strength, can it be hurt, can it be stopped, etc. Um, but they, they never have, they never turn it into a sort of a systematic um, uh, attempt to figure out and defeat the thing, because they do stuff to try to defeat it, none of which makes a ton of sense. Like the, the pool and the electrocution and shooting it and nothing really has much of an effect i mean every time they shoot it the thing comes back every time they barricade it it gets through somehow except Um, for the last time they shoot it so they and again we're talking very concretely which we should but i think then we have to step back and because the entire movie is a metaphor uh we have to sort of step back from the concrete talk in a little bit but when they shoot it at the end of the movie it's a 2014 movie so we can have spoilers uh when they're in the pool it gets into the pool um, and uh, it grabs Jay's leg when she's underwater, and it's holding her down. And Paul manages to shoot it in the head, at which point you see it let her go, and it sinks to the bottom of the pool. And Jay, who is the only one who can see it, the only person who can see it is the person who it's following. Um, she sees the pool filling with blood, and there is a sense after that scene that that maybe the danger has passed. So that is different, and it's, but it's, it's shot more than once, but that time it's shot in the head. And it does, it does appear to, at the very, very least, be dramatically slowed down. But I agree with you, you know, um, it's unclear what happens at the end. I mean, that, that bit at the end where uh, Jay and Paul are walking down the street, there's a figure walking behind them at about the same speed that it walked, and no one else seems to react to it. So you don't know, is that just some random dude, or is it still pursuing them? Right, and neither do they. So you know they're the they're going to be scared forever because they never know when the thing's going to come back at them, basically, like an STD. Wait, <laughs> like right, we're getting to the meta. We're getting to the metaphor part right. of this. Film. The metaphor is the herps. The movie's um, about the herps <laughs> or other stuff. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, but the herps comes I'll, and goes. <laughs> I mean, I like the way that you know she is essentially inducted into. Uh, a death cult, Jay, uh, by her her boyfriend Hugh at the beginning of the film. I mean, you know, she's unwittingly uh, enrolled into a death cult, but that's essentially what it is. And one thing you didn't mention in the summary that I think is worth saying is the opening scene of the film is a girl we don't know much about, and she Gets is killed. seen racing out of her house. She goes to the beach. She calls her parents and essentially says goodbye right. and is uh, shown to be basically mutilated after the fact, you don't actually see the attack of it on her. You just sort of see her dead the following morning, torn apart on the beach, essentially. Yeah. And that sort of, that's our real introduction that there's, 
you know, something terrible that these kids are running from. And that girl in the beginning, even though she has a car, the implication is that maybe she's had enough and she's letting it come to her. Um, it made me wonder, did Hugh give it to her? And then she got killed and it passed back to Hugh. And right. now he's, you know, Jay is the next girl that he is looking for, uh, trying to pass this thing off. Um, Hugh's pretty expert. So it, he, it's, it, he clearly has had the herps for a while. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he figures that he's, he's figured out a few ways to conduct himself. And, and I, I took it that, you know, as the movie goes on and you kind of realize his position and how expert he is when they go back to him as Professor Herps, you know, when they go talk to him later and he he sort of gives them a lecture once they find him. Um, he gives them another lecture with more info. And I think he probably has tried some of this stuff before and has figured out a lot because even, you know, when they find his hideout, he's got cans hanging, like he's got a, a warning system. He really knows how to kind of handle stuff. Right. Although even, although it's also shown that he's not perfect at it. And for example, when he takes Jade to the, to the movies before uh, right. he inducts her into the death cult, um, he doesn't see it like it's it's standing in the back of the room and he doesn't right. see it and he comments on it and, and and she says what are you talking about and it's only when she, she sort of acknowledges that she can't see it that he realizes it's very close and then they have to flee the theater and she at this point doesn't know what's happening at all um so I think it's impossible to talk about this movie uh without acknowledging the influence of John Carpenter um I think that there is a lot of conscious nods to John Carpenter, right? Right. I, Tanya is to Martin Scorsese. What it follows is to John Carpenter. Yeah. I think the way the suburb is filmed, the way the town looks might as well be Haddonfield from the Carpenter movies. Um, the, the Halloween. soundtrack, right? Exactly. The yeah. soundtrack is very, very similar to the, the sort of bare bones, uh, synthetic score that Carpenter favors in his films. And for example, the thing, um, so I think that sort of looming over this whole movie is John Carpenter. And I think it's done in a good way. I didn't, you know, it's not in any sense that uh, David Robert Mitchell is is ripping Carpenter off. I think he's sort of acknowledging his work and, and doing an homage to him throughout the film. Yeah, it's sort of a revival of that um, style. I think you're... 80s, I think it's, 70s, 80s style. Right, and you're right. I think it's quite reverential. Um. And the film takes place in sort of an uncertain time. Like, is this the 80s? Is it the 90s? Like, mm -hmm. they're, they're always shown to be watching old cathode ray tube televisions, yet uh, Jay's sister appears to have a sort of Kindle-like or iPhone-like uh, clamshell device that I was humorously referring to as the shell phone. Um in this movie that that is sort of discordant with the rest of the technology in the entire film like the cars are all old cars, cars the tvs old. are old yeah but she has this very very modern digital device that she's seen reading from a couple times in the movie i think it's part of the plan to make the place seem uh, nowhere everywhere no time anytime sort of perpetual right. and now. dreamy dreamy and, you know, it's part of the kind of nightmarish, dreamy aspect of the movie. I mean, the, to me, the, my favorite part of the movie, my favorite aspect of the movie, I should say, was the dreaminess of it, the look of it, 
um, the lighting, the, the cinematography, um, is really, it's, it's realism. Um, it's not sort of, there's no Vaseline, uh, but it's, it's very, um, it, it's, it's sort of a, it has a dreamlike quality to it. Um, and, and I think that it's that sort of anonymous kind of discombobulated feeling or feeling of, you know, when you have, when you have a nightmare, there are all these things that don't make sense that you're sort of halfway meta aware that don't make sense in the nightmare. And yet you still accept it. And I got that feeling watching this movie, you know, I have a real problem suspending disbelief in horror films. And it took me a while to tolerate watching this movie because in the beginning, it still has a horror movie elements in the very beginning. And it took me about half hour to hmm. get into it to the point where, because I cannot spend for whatever reason, you know, we, we talk about sci-fi all the time and I'm able, you know, when somebody engages the warp drive, I'm able to suspend disbelief somehow, or, you know, they're flying around space, just standing there. Uh, I'm fine with that somehow. But when you, when you get a mummy in the, on screen, <laughs> You know, or a, a dude with a hockey mask. Um, I, I can't, I can't suspend this belief. It's just me. I, I don't know. It's always been that way for me. Right. So it took me a while to allow the movie to work for me. But once I did that, that nightmarish quality I found was the best part of the movie. I think what I liked most about it was the way that they seemed like genuine teenagers, the way that they spoke to each other, like they sort of rag on each other, even like when they're in danger, right? Like yeah. they, they sort of retain their teenager-ish qualities uh, that I, I bought into and I enjoyed watching all their interactions. And like, for example, the way that uh, Jay sleeps with, uh, I guess his name is Greg, who she passes it to and sort of the whole movie, Paul is sort of pining for her from the backseat right. of the car you know like i mean we've all been teenagers and and you know we've all seen that happen and we've all maybe been various people in that triangle what are you talking uh, about we've all been years. paul not greg <laughs> well we're still here at least um <laughs> but i i liked that part of it and i also thought it was interesting how this movie appeared to exist uh, outside of the world of adults all right you only see a few adults in the entire film right you see uh the girl's father in the beginning who uh who the girl who's killed at the beach, you see her father for just a minute. Um, you see a little bit of the teachers in school, but that's about it. And most of this movie, the kids are sort of off in their own universe. I mean, even when Greg gets murdered, you know, I mean, he's his, just, his death is discovered. And the only real sort of acknowledgement that the adults are involved is there's a police car in front of his house for a little bit. But, you know, even, even though one of their friends is murdered, it doesn't really intrude upon the sort of the, the world of the teenagers and the kids and the sense that they are on their own trying to sort this out. And for example, when characters, a couple of the characters get admitted to the hospital, uh, Jay and her sister get admitted to the hospital at different points of this movie. And you don't really see any doctors or nurses. You just sort of see the kids in the, in the hospital room with each other. Like I thought it was sort of interesting that the movie just took us outside of the world of adults. It's sort of like a more grown up version of the peanuts, uh, strips, you know, where you never saw an adult. Yeah. And it's also makes it into this sort of nightmarish capsule. You know, that, that there's, there's no other distraction. There's no, um, outside world. It's this self-contained, um, horrifying situation. 
Right. And the adults really can't help them, too. Right. Correct. And, and maybe the implication is they don't go to the adults because they can't. Right. Or it would break the bubble that the movie is artificially set in. Right. Because in real life, people would tell their parents or they'd go to the cops or whatever. Um, but well, she goes know, to the it's horror movie logic. Yeah. Right. Right. But I mean, but the thing is, this movie is very successful in creating that little bubble. Um, you know, that, that feeling, right. that feeling of isolation. The other thing I thought was really good was the way that it was portrayed. I mean, every time you see it, it looks different. Sometimes it's a female, sometimes it's a male. Um, and the, the, the forms that it takes are often sort of scary, but not necessarily grotesque, like an old woman in a hospital gown or a, a younger woman partially disrobed urinating herself. Like, there's not a lot of overt gore in the way that it manifests. It's not a ghoul, per se, um, but all of the forms are meant to frighten and invoke a sense of dread, which I think we'll get back to it when we talk about sort of the, the larger metaphorical piece of the film. Um, I thought, and again, like I said earlier, I thought the effects were great. Like, there's only a few effects, most of which really involve the. There's a fight on the beach where it attacks them on a beach, and it's essentially invisible. And then there's the large standoff at the pool, mm-hmm. uh, where it, it may or may not be killed. And there's some gunshots um, and right, but I thought that those few scenes are very well done. And again, you know, a two-hour CGI movie doesn't have the impact of two or three well done. CGI scenes slipped into a movie that's otherwise filmed without, you know, digital overworking of every last frame of the movie. George Lucas, please take note. Um, but I thought that, you know, less is more. And it had a lot more impact. Like, to me, that scene in the pool is phenomenal. And I went back and watched that scene in the pool two or three times because I think it's it's just so well done. And it gets all the players in one room for the sort of the essential, the final face-off. And everyone's vulnerable and everyone's at risk, not just Jay, because Paul is firing a gun around, right? right? To the well, point where he hits Jay's sister. Right, which he, he almost shoots Greg in the other scene. You know, that they, they act like part of the way they're teenagers is that they, they do a lot of stuff that's probably not the greatest idea. Right, um, but they're very impulsive. They're impulsive and they're terrified. And um, you you understand... You, you know, you want to scream at them from the from the seat in the theater, like <laughs> "Look out behind you!" You know, but <laughs> don't go in there, <laughs> right? You know, don't 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 no don't don't shoot. You want to you want to scream at them, but at the same time, um, the movie successfully puts you in their shoes to the point where you understand why maybe he's not paying full attention to what's behind the barrel of the gun about twenty yards away um, when he's he's trying to shoot the the it right so let's talk no, about sure let's talk about the herps so you know you could um i watched this with one of my daughters and i mean you could you could make a lot of hypotheses as did to you, what it did you keep is saying when represent. you were watching did you keep saying you see <laughs> you see you see what happens um so i mean I think that the obvious metaphors is that it is an STD or possibly HIV. Um, although, you know, I think that the film is actually aiming for a bigger point. And I think, you know, the fact that you essentially, you know, it follows you after you have sex and the idea that maybe you can pass it on is, I think it's a bigger idea. And I, I suspect that, 
Robert David Mitchell had a bigger point in mind uh, than just, for example, an STD. And I I, I've literally been thinking about this for a week solid. And, and you could make the argument that it is adulthood, right? Or, or even writ larger is death, right? And the idea that like when you have sex, you're sort of, you're no longer in the world of the child and you've now entered into sort of the world of adulthood, right? And at the end of the movie, the sister reads that passage I, uh, about death. Um, and you could argue, again, I would argue that maybe it is actually some amalgam of adulthood and with adulthood, the knowledge that eventually you're, it's going to get you. Like, you know, your, your time's going to come and you're not a kid forever. That was sort of my take on it. Yeah. And I think, right, mortality. But also the thing is, you know, the movie's about, part of it is it's just an undercurrent of things that are fearful, including death and mortality. So I, I think that, I don't think the movie has to, it doesn't pick uh, a definite metaphor. You know what I mean? It's sort of, it leaves things ambiguous in at almost every point of the movie, including the end, which is completely ambiguous. Um, so I think the movie wants to make those illusions, but remain ambiguous. So sure. There's, there's, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's definitely that, that aspect, the aspect of mortality, you know, orgasm is the little death, as it's called. Right, le petit mort. Right. right. And, you know, there's definitely that aspect. And and you know, the, the fact that they, they spend their time running or sort of living a, a, a juvenile, uh, life of a juvenile loafer, in a way. I mean, these people aren't going, they're not punching clock um, and going into work. Uh, you know, they're sort of sitting no, around. No, they're mostly lounging around in the other kids' basements. Right. They hang around and go on dates or not, or read or pine after each other. Uh, and one time are seen at school, which is, looks like college, you know. Um, and they, they drive around in old cars and go to old spooky places like the swimming pool or investigating old houses or so they're, they're leading the life of at best at most a uh, college student. Um, right. But I thought they were supposed to be in high school. That was my take on it. I thought except for the, the scene where she goes to um, it looked more like college, but I, I wasn't sure how old they, they're definitely young. Um, and also I think to go with the sort of like, adulthood ideas that you could pass it on to somebody else, right? Like you could have your first time and then have your eyes open and then you could initiate somebody else into this. Right. Right. And now they can initiate other people. I, I just, I don't know. Again, I think you're, it's a mistake to get too concrete with this, but right. I think that there, I think it's more than just an STD. Although a lot of people have sort of focused on the STD slash HIV angle. But I think, I think that, I think if that's all it is, it's 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 a long run for a short slide to just make a movie that's a metaphor about HIV. I think that there's a bigger concept lurking at the heart of this film. Yeah, I can't. First of all, it's totally passe to be that worried about HIV to the point where it's spiking again, and it's <laughs> so because well, people aren't aren't as worried as they used to, right? Be. Um, and uh, you know, I I. I you really cannot just. There's no way. This, look, this is a this is a horror movie. It's supposed to be scary. It's not just a movie. It's not just a a movie about a cautionary tale about STDs. Um, 
There's no way. This is a, it's a horror movie. Right. But again, I think that like, like all movies, I mean, I don't, I don't look down on it because it's a horror movie. I'm not saying you do, but I mean, I think that even horror movies are capable of addressing sort of bigger points or, or, or sort of, you know, being, being better than they could potentially be. Again, again, most horror movies are sort of schlock meant to play in the theater for two weeks and then have a little life on video. But I, I just felt that this had more thought behind it and more intentions than just, you know, a typical splatter fest. Well, this isn't Friday the 13th, a new beginning. But even the splatter fests, you know, they teach you to keep your chainsaw chain sharp. <laughs> I mean, there's always this, some kind of ulterior motive. Um, I had read in a couple of places that there was a sequel in the works, but it's four years later. And I think he's come out with another film since he's got something um, in the works. I think it looks like from looking online, he's got something either out now or in the works. Yeah. About a missing um, girl in LA, I think. Uh, but I, I had read a couple of places that he was talking about doing a sequel where, uh, the kids, either these kids or another group of kids were going to go to try to track it up the line and figure out where it came from. Hmm. I think he I mean, should not make a sequel until his career is <laughs> sufficient. If his career ever gets to the point where it's threatened, maybe that he can make a sequel. Well, but the problem with making a sequel is then you have to answer the question. I think it's better if you leave it unopened, right? Because then you're essentially making 2010 the year we make contact and you're trying to concretely answer all the questions that Kubrick left open-ended, right, in 2001. Otherwise, you suddenly find yourself in Peter Hyam's shoes, shall we say. Yes, um, And it's better not. if they... Don't do it. Right, it's better if they <laughs> just leave it open. And again, this thing, this thing made 11 times what it costs to make in terms of profit. Right. So right. that's, I mean, that's a phenomenal yield for an independent film that got, that got real distribution. Um, so, you know, I agree with you that if he's smart and I assume he is, he'll, he'll put it on the shelf and move on to the next thing. But this is the first of his movies. He made another movie before this that I did not see. By the way, there's some dude at Paramount that's that's all they're thinking. There's not more than there's more than one dude. There's dudes at all the major studios that are thinking that exact thing. Does it scale? Can this guy right. can we take give this guy a hundred million and he makes us one point follows two. One point one billion. <laughs> you know, they want they want billions. So they want to give a guy a hundred million and make one billion. Right. And so they're thinking, does it scale that way? And it, can he make it, something it for fourteen doesn't. year olds? No, it absolutely probably doesn't. not. And, and I mean, and the, and the whole horror genre, with very rare exceptions, is designed around inexpensive movies made with largely casts of unknowns that can be had cheap. Right. But right? his agent is arguing the exact opposite right now. His, his agent <laughs> is saying, of course it can scale. Why don't we try like, you know, we don't have to go to 100 million. Let's just do like 80 million to start and we'll see how it does. Did you see the myth of the American sleepover, his prior film? I, I have not. No. I have to look for it and see if it's on Netflix or Amazon, but I'd definitely be curious to watch it uh, after this. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, what other horror movies are sort of... I, I Sometimes I call them unmovies, like they sort of defy their convention. Like the way I think about, for example, uh, True Grit or or more appropriately Unforgiven as sort of unwesterns, right? Like they... They sort of they don't do 
what you expect a Western to do or they go a different way. Like, you know, I would call this to some extent an unhorror film. Like The Shining, I mentioned earlier, I think is the sort of the, the ultimate unhorror film. Like it just it doesn't do exactly what you think it's gonna do and it goes in much more interesting and less predictable directions. But what other what other horror films sort of break out above the genre of just being, you know, quick and dirty schlock? I would say the thing. Scary movie. <laughs> <laughs> killing me <laughs> uh no I, the shining is the ultimate i mean this movie is is more of a horror movie than i mean it's a good horror movie but it's a horror movie uh like halloween the first one um but um there are maybe not in, many maybe that, invasion of the body snatchers right which has much larger points to address or some hitchcock right hitchcock's, like maybe the birds hitchcock's in like in its own category it's kind of like but it's still horror suspense. It's horror, but it's right? sort of like Maybe has a realism sense, to it. The sixth sense. The sixth but you know, sense. It, uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. This movie I think fits, so. But this movie fits the horror genre much closer than any of those. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it this movie and, and Halloween kind of are in the same genre in a way. Yeah, I think they're definitely, they're closely related. But again, I'd still put this as a better film than most horror films. And again, I'm certainly not, you know, horror fans listening may, may be scratching their head and saying, we don't know what the hell we're talking about. But um, I don't know, at least to me, I've seen, you know, my share of horror films and most of them leave me pretty flat. But this, this I kind of took something away from, and like I said earlier, I thought about it, you know, for quite some time after I saw it. Um, is it, what about horror sci-fi? I mean, that's a sort of interesting crossover genre, you know, like, alien. um, right. And alien may be the best example of horror sci-fi, right? Oh yeah. That's a scary sci-fi movie. It's a horror movie. That's sci-fi really more, more accurately. Right. It's essentially 10 little Indians in space. Um, you know, and it's funny because none of the other aliens movies have really been able to, to capture that. They've either been, more sort of sci-fi action movies than anything else. Whereas only really alien is essentially, I think a true horror film. Well, um, aliens was a sci-fi action movie and the rest of them sucked. Right. But, but there's, there's still, you know, there's still major releases from studios that they put a lot in, but you know, alien three is largely an action movie. It has very little scary moments to it. It's mostly chasing and running around. Um, so, but you know, it's funny. And uh, Doctor Who, you know, often vacillated between horror and sci-fi. And for example, I mean, I think you can see it really starting in the sort of third Doctor realm, all the way up into the modern incarnation of the show. Like they will vacillate between episodes that are essentially pure, you know, science fiction and episodes that are essentially pure horror. You know, and sometimes literally week to week, they would bounce back and forth. I remember when we were kids and we were watching Doctor Who on, you know, our local stations. I remember sort of not being sure if it was a sci-fi show or a horror show as a kid. But it was it was hard for me to categorize because it, unlike most shows on TV, it did not have a consistent tone. You know, you could have... You could have something written by Douglas Adams one week and something written by Robert Holmes the next week, and it was the same cast and production team, but a completely different show that they would turn out. Right. And let's not forget the original Star Trek show uh, episode, Cat's Paw. 
Yeah. <laughs> there you, there you right, go. A, a famous a failed marriage of science fiction and horror. <laughs> uh, Halloween episodes. Well, this, you know, it's funny about Cat's Paw is, you know, like a lot of the failed um, Star Trek episodes, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about These Are the Voyages, the, the three book series on Star Trek, the original series. And one of the points that they make in those books is that some of the worst episodes started off with the best ideas that just got corrupted, right? Or the budget got cut and sort of everything great that was in the original idea and pitch and story never made it onto the screen. And Cat's Paw was one of them. I think the original idea for Cat's Paw was very, very different and much more intense and frightening. And what they ended up putting on the screen, uh, I think, you know, and I say this as a big Star Trek fan, is essentially an embarrassment, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, when my brother and I were kids, at the very end when you see Sylvia, and we're getting way off the topic from It Follows, but at the end of that episode, when you see Sylvia and Korob in their true form, my brother and I were like, are they made of pipe cleaners? Like, that was literally like what we were, we were left wondering. Like, they looked, it looked so incredibly cheap and terrible. Oh, God. <laughs> well, anyway, the plot back was to, also um, horrendous. Back to It Follows for a second. Um it's worth commenting on um, Jay. I mean, Jay is, is it uh, Micah Monroe uh, Buckley, uh, who essentially carries most of this film. And she has to carry this film as a sort of vulnerable character for most of it. And I think she does a good job. The only other thing I've seen her in, I've seen her in that is a terrible Independence Day sequel. She plays, I think, the president's daughter, but... Um, She's almost unrecognizable in that, but uh, I think that's the only other thing I've seen her in. But she's actually had a pretty long career, and she's op- she's uh, she's acted in quite a few uh, movies so far. Everyone else in this movie I didn't recognize. Did you? No, but I don't pay near as much attention to you as to. I, I mean, I don't. I'm not up on current cinema to the level you are, but I think that basically they were a cast of less known, shall we say. Um, actors, but as you expect in a, in a relatively budget indie film. And I think that's part of what gives it its freshness is that you really, you haven't seen them before, you know? I mean, there's probably, in Hollywood, I imagine there is a never-ending supply of young teenage actors and actresses who would love to be in a horror film as, you know, hopefully their breakthrough. Love to be in anything that right. is They'd going to, to be con. <laughs> Do you you don't watch the Big Bang Theory? But one of the gags on the Big Bang Theory is that the the blonde Penny is like a desperate failing actress, and like her her great accomplishment is she gets in a hemorrhoid commercial, <laughs> and she's she's thrilled. And like the the, the actual they actually show the commercial, it's like now I can ride a horse again. Right. <laughs> nice. Oh God. Um. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts on it follows? No, it's nice to see a an independent film these days make it. You know, it's it's nice thing because yeah, the, no. the days the days of the art theater are over, right? The days of because with home video the way it is and with the changing demographics, um, the concept of the art cinema is is almost gone. So it's kind of right. nice and, to see. And for example, I live in a city of. <clears throat> to roughly two million people, and there are exactly two art cinemas in the city of two million people. I mean, you you have to make an active effort to go right. It it 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I think I think years ago there were just a lot more independent cinemas, but now with all the competition from Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and everything streams, and you know, it's just hard to do. But uh, you know, how many arts? And your your city is probably bigger than mine. How many art houses do you have where you are? Uh, probably zero. Really? That's I mean, depressing. it's not exactly. Well, you know, the thing is, though, there's a there's a chain in the downtown area that um, shows smaller run stuff. So it has an adult, uh, you know, and it's, it's a, it's one of the chain theaters, but it has a lot of small theaters in it that are Mm -hmm. modern theaters and they, they get the, they get the art releases. So that, that's the closest thing there is. And there's a couple of those. Yeah. We have two dedicated art cinemas here, which is kind of nice. One of which has three or four screens. One of which has just one screen. It's really, really tiny. All right. Well, well, my hats off to um, to uh, Robert. Sorry, David Robert Mitchell for it follows. Uh, I definitely will be looking to see uh, his next film. I'm going to see if I can get my hands on his prior film, which I suspect I bet is on Amazon or Netflix. Yep. And next week uh, we'll do uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> I was actually thinking Motel Hell. Remember that one? Mm, I remember the name. I think Motel Hell involves, like, you check in this hotel, they capture you, and they, like, bury you in the ground, and, like, you're used as, like, human fertilizer or something. I don't even remember. What but was I that just movie? Remember this, centipede? I just remember this image of you know, the human centipede. Oh, my God. Was, I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to admit that I saw. That was possibly <laughs> the worst movie I've ever seen. And I cannot believe that people somehow recommended that to each other, as it yeah. was recommended to me as something watch something to watch i mean that movie was i'm not saying that it was bad because it was disgusting i don't care you know there's plenty of good stuff that's disgusting right yeah it was but it it was was, genuinely awful it was asinine and again i'm sure horror some horror fans listening to this thing may may whatever react or recoil from us but I, I don't know if I'd say it's the worst movie I ever saw, but it's in the top. I guess I could put it in the bottom five. How is that? The bottom five <laughs> films I've ever seen in my entire life. And, and, and I freely admit I watched the whole thing. I think I watched uh, the whole thing, Lord. too, and I'm, I'm still angry at myself. <laughs> That's 90 minutes you'll never get back. <laughs> yes. It stinks, as uh, what John right, Lovitz exactly. would say. <laughs> All right, well, but maybe, you know, we can look into maybe some other horror films as we go. All right, should we wrap there? Yep, good night, everybody. All right, thanks, Peter. See you.